members of this conference are to be the architects of a better world. Greetings. You are listening to the introduction of a three-part podcast series about the founding of the United Nations titled Act of Creation. It features Stephen Schlesinger, author of the book of the same name, and it's focused through the prism of what is famously known as the San Francisco Conference, where for two months, beginning on April 25, 1945, the UN Charter was hammered out and signed on June 26, 1945. It's important to emphasize that this historical story is not only fascinating in its own right, but is especially relevant to events occurring right now. There are big lessons to learn here, lessons about leadership, about isolationism, and about the power of an educated general public. So it's not only fascinating, but it's useful. Today's episode could be called Setting the Scene, and it discusses the dramatic moment in time in which the Charter was born. In episode two, we'll dive into the conference itself, and in episode three, we'll put it all together and take stock of the impact of this singular moment in time. I met with Stephen over two afternoons in September 2022 at his home in New York, and quite ironically, just as we were setting up to record our conversation, we realized that by sheer coincidence, the 77th opening session of the UN General Assembly was in progress right across town, and more specifically, the often headline-making general debate was taking place at that very moment. That's, that's the guys going. This happens, the General Assembly meets every fall. It's the first op- official opening of the uh, UN for the new session. It means that practically every head of state or prime minister or a dictator shows up if they wish to kind of get on the record about their particular grievances or proposals. So it's quite a uh, crowded week or two. New York is absolutely shut down in terms of the ability to move around because there are police and, and military and intelligence people all over the place. But it's quite a very exciting time for New Yorkers. Greetings. My name is Dan Becker, and it's my great pleasure to be having a discussion today with uh, Stephen Schlesinger. Uh, Stephen is the author of a book that I've become quite enamored with. It's called Act of Creation, the Founding of the United Nations. And the subtitle is A Story of Superpowers, Secret Agents, Wartime Allies and Enemies, and their quest for a peaceful world. And that uh, subtitle is very important because it shows what a tremendous story this is, a combination of uh, international intrigue, human drama, and even a Hollywood glitz, all combined to help create uh, the United Nations, is a pretty uh, exciting, interesting story. So I'd I'd love to introduce Stephen and ask him how he got involved in uh, writing this book. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I, I got involved as a young student, actually, at one of the model UNs in, in high school. And also, there was a model UN in college. Um, and I would visited the UN building at one point as, as a youngster. And I was just so blown away by the marvel that all the countries of the world were represented in this single building. So that was made a big impression on me. Um, but as the years passed, uh, I, you know, would rethink the idea how important the UN was, but I hadn't really focused on a book. It wasn't until 
I ha- happened on a historian who was actually doing a book about how the U.S. came into possession and was able to construct the first atomic bombs. He he had uh, asked under the Freedom of Information Act for all the documents related to that, but one of the documents he got was uh, a um, revelation that in the U.N. Uh, meeting in San Francisco in 1945 that the U.S. had used spies to find out the positions of the other delegations coming to San Francisco before they all ratified the UN Charter. Now that intrigued me because as I told you with my previous interest in the UN, I thought, well, this has never been explored. I I don't know anything about this. So I sent away under the Freedom of Information Act for further documentation on that and for the um, cables that the, between the US mission in San Francisco and State Department and the FBI's role and the OSS role, we precursor to the CIA. And once I got that kind of material, I started realizing that there was actually a dramatic story here. And uh, that really put me on, uh, on the track to write this book. So, Stephen, now I'm going to ask you a question that I've been sort of formulating in my mind for, for a while, and I thought it might lead in a couple of different directions. Um, so it goes something, something like this. So let's pretend you had a class on the UN four years ago or so before I began any of this work. And the first question on the test was simply to talk about the state of the world when the um, UN was formed, just the context of the UN. So I would have said something probably like, well, World War II had ended and the world was in tatters. Especially shocking was the bombing of Hiroshima. And it was only under that cloud that the world agreed that it needed another international organization. So representatives from the world came to New York and it was only under the active and strong leadership of FDR that the United Nations was born. So so my question to you is why would I have utterly failed that exam? Well, I mean, your basic outlines are, are, are correct. Actually, they met in San Francisco, not in New York. San Francisco, California. A momentous conference begins. Here, leaders of the United Nations, representing all but a fraction... The reason of the why Roosevelt agreed to San Francisco is a very odd one. Um, his Secretary of State, uh, Edward Satinius, came to Roosevelt during the Yalta Conference one night and one morning and said, you know, I had a dream last night that, that our UN conference should be in San Francisco. Why Stettinius had that dream and why Roosevelt took it seriously is un- unclear, but Roosevelt suddenly thought, that is a great idea. We'll have the meeting in San Francisco. I think one of the reasons he thought that was a good idea is that the war in the Pacific had not yet been finished. So he felt if the UN had its meeting in San Francisco while the war against the Japanese was still going on. It would give credibility to the U.S. efforts to bring all nations together to defeat the final last enemy of of World War II, the Japanese. So from that point of view, he thought it was important to have the conference on the western uh, shores of our country rather than the eastern shores. Another reason was I think he realized that Asia was going to be a a big player in the future. While China was going through a civil war at that time, it still had the biggest population on the globe, and it was obviously going to be one of the central bodies of power in, in the coming years. So he felt there, this would be kind of a recognition of the importance of Asia. 
And finally, of course, um, San Francisco is a beautiful city. He thought it would impress the delegates with our power and, and uh, our ability to survive the, the devastation of the war because we were never really hit during the entire five years of that conflict. And one of the sort of interesting points is that many of the countries coming to Europe took train trips across the United States to get to San Francisco. They would leave from New York or Washington and they'd take a two or three day train trip and they would see the prosperity of the country, the great wheat fields and, and vegetable gardens and, and big cities and you know the enormous wealth that this country had accumulated and that would have an impact on their willingness to join the UN. So for all those reasons San Francisco, San Francisco struck Roosevelt is the right city for the meeting to take place. So another um, thing in that question of mine that I gave some terrible answers, but you were so kind about, was that I wrote that one reason the world was open to forming a new organization is they were in such shock by the bombing of Hiroshima. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. Well, actually, Hiroshima happened after the conference ended. Hiroshima happened in August of 20, uh, 1945. The, the, the uh, meeting in San Francisco ended in June of 1945. So Hiroshima happened two months after the, the UN ended its meeting. So do you think after Hiroshima that the charter could have been signed, the UN could have happened, or would the dynamics of the world just have changed so much from that? Well, I th um, that, that's an interesting question. I, there, I have two views on that. First of all, I think it, I think it would have reinforced the desire of most nations around the globe to have some sort of world body that would um, deal with the advent of these atomic weapons that had never, they were unprecedented. The, the, the explosive power was unimaginable. So I think from the point of view of just the fear quotient, they would have been willing to come together for a uh, such a meeting to um, put together such a charter. On the other hand, one could argue that by the time Hiroshima took place, which was in August of uh, 1945, the European war was already ended. And of course, August was at the time the Japanese war ended. Maybe the countries would have felt, hey, the war's over, let's go back and rebuild our societies. We can't dwell right now on setting up an international organization. I think that's wrong, frankly, in my own view. I think the, the um, explosion of an atomic bomb would have so shattered their views of the possibility of, of, of another war happening that they would immediately have showed up anyway for a UN meeting in August. Okay, picking it up, uh, uh, part of my, my question was, I write uh, that because World War II had, had ended, um, and as you say, that uh, it hadn't ended yet. In fact, uh, Germany didn't surrender till I think, uh, early May. The American Third Army pushes farther into the crumbling German citadel, racing other Allied armies to Berlin. Tanks blaze the way. One of the reasons Roosevelt wanted to have the meeting for the UN in April of 
1945 is because the war was still going on. He felt that if the uh, meeting for the UN was to take place after the war ended, a lot of nations wouldn't show up. Why? Because they would be too preoccupied with repairing their war-torn societies. They wouldn't focus on the need for the UN. They might have a kind of residual belief that it was important, but they wouldn't send their best people. They would just not be uh, targeting the whole notion of a security body. And but if they came, if the conference took time during the war itself, they would they, they would be there because they wanted the end of the war. They wanted the war ended, and they only they knew the only way that could happen is for them to all to get together with all their allies. And, uh, and set up this body. But where, where was FDR when the conference was taking place? Okay, this is the, the, the sad note I must uh, report that is uh, San Francisco started in April 25th of 1945. Twelve days before that conference began, uh, regrettably, unfortunately, sadly, Franklin Roosevelt died. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis, Jr., speaking from the Mutual Studios in New York City. This nation has suffered this day a staggering loss. At this moment, at Warm Springs, Georgia, President Franklin D. Roosevelt lies with the problems of, his, of the nation finally lifted from his shoulders, stricken late this afternoon with cerebral hemorrhage. He passed away before his physicians could be of any assistance, if assistance in such a case is possible at all. And this was a this could have been a tremendous blow to the uh, to the success of that uh, meeting in San Francisco. Fortunately for our country, Roosevelt's vice president Harry Truman, uh, a not a well-regarded senator at the time. I mean, many people didn't know much about him. He was from the Midwest. He he hadn't even gone to college. So the question was, would he follow up on Roosevelt's dream? And a, lo a lot of people doubted he would. They thought, well, he, he'd pass it by and just uh, go forward with his own notions about what should be happening around the world. But in fact, it turns out Ro Truman was a secret internationalist. In fact, he, on his own, had studied all the great uh, prior global regional organizations that might have taken the place of the UN. And he realized that Roosevelt was absolutely on the right track, that this was the only body that could assure that the world could have peace in the coming years. And therefore, he was fully committed from the day he took over his presidency to making sure that, San, that the San Francisco conference was, was a success. And there were problems there. He, you know, no conference goes without difficulty. But he surmounted them, and in doing so, brought help bring more than anybody outside of Roosevelt bring the UN into being. Yeah, that, that's where I was getting at. When I found out that, that Roosevelt had died 13 days or so before the conference started, I just thought, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe this, this happened without his leadership. Everything Roosevelt was doing was always to manage what he saw as an outcome, namely making certain that this UN come into being. Even when he, as, a, as we point out, Three months before the conference began, he had to go to a meeting at Yalta. Uh, he was suffering. He was in bad health. But that means he had to travel thousands of miles to Yalta, which is part of Ukraine, Crimea, um, to meet with Stalin because Stalin refused to travel beyond Crimea. 
and you also didn't Stalin complain it was because of his own health and, as well and Stalin complained because of his own health but Roosevelt was willing to sacrifice his health knowing he was not in the greatest shape just because he so profoundly believed in, in the importance of forming this body that he traveled all these thousands of miles in, in enormous discomfort because he you know the planes at that time were not luxury settings and he also once he got to Yalta, he had to travel miles over rough roads just to get to the city of Yalta. Everything was miserable. Even the accommodations at Yalta itself, there was like one bathroom for most of the delegation and, and one bathroom for Roosevelt. And, but he didn't care because his single-minded vision was, I have to bring Stalin into this thing or it won't work. I have to bring Churchill into this thing or it won't work. Well, a couple of things. There, one, one. I know there were there were bed bugs as well at Yalta, <laughs> which, knowing friends here in New York City, it sounds like a potential terrible, terrible, terrible. thing. Furniture brought in at the last minute yep. just for the delegation. Um, and I know you tell the story of FDR's report to Congress when he returns, which has a particular quality of, of its own. Could you just share that story a little bit? When Roosevelt spoke to the Congress, he he did it in a sitting sitting position. This was. Uh, unusual. In fact, it was unique. Most of the time, he had always stood up. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Congress, I hope that you will pardon me for an unusual posture of sitting down during the presentation of what I want to say. But I know that you will realize that it makes it a lot easier for me in not having to carry about 10 pounds of steel round on the bottom of my legs, and also because of the fact that I have just completed a 14,000-mile trip. This should have been a signal to the rest of Congress that this man was not in great health. And, of course, just a few weeks later, he died. But uh, it showed the willpower of this man that he was willing to travel these thousands of miles to Yalta in bad health. He was willing to come back and address Congress which took tremendous energy and presence on his part to talk about his accomplishments at Yalta and what he saw as his vision for the future of our great country. I believe you also mentioned in your book that uh, one of his hands was, was shaking and quivering so much that he had to turn the pages with his, his other hand. And, and my feeling, the reason I bring this up is whether it's... Uh, stagecraft or whether it's just optics or whether it's the truth or a combination of the above i think these things are very very important you you mentioned you you paint a beautiful painting in the book of sort of the gravity of that that situation that statement has and the the kind of quiet uh, seriousness that the, the attendees have with watching that and um and i think there are many many more of those kind of moments that could be happening now with the United Nations. And one of the things we want to do in this discussion is see what lessons we can learn from this period and apply it now. Early in the Ukraine war, even once you mentioned that Secretary General Guterres could have been everywhere, standing by certain people at certain times, going to different countries, and, and that kind of thing, um, uh, you could tell me if you agree, has um, power, both optics, symbolism, um, what's your thought about that? I, I think Guterres, you know, he'd been a prime minister before in, in Portugal. I think he, one of the reasons he hesitated at the beginning of when the Russians first encircled Ukraine with their troops is he felt 
that, and I guess this is, is from his political background, that he didn't want to get involved in something where he didn't know the outcome. On the other hand, the Secretary General has to take chances. They can't just simply sit there and, and think, well, I'll let it play out a little before I get involved. I mean, the Secretary, you thought, in, in during the Cuban Missile Crisis, involved himself directly from the very beginning of that crisis because he realized that the UN was the only player in this game. Uh, nobody else could do that by intervening and, and bringing parties together. It's, it's very interesting to, to talk about this now because, um, and I'm curious which way you you, you fall on this, this question, if, if at all, that I think Doug Hammarskjöld used to speak to this, you should still move immediately, you know, and, and show that you're trying, even if you may err a little bit on, on the, the, the problems and dangers you, you mentioned. I'm curious, as you think about it and time moves on, if you have a, if you come down either way on that kind no, of No, I, I, listen, the UN has tried to settle the Syrian crisis for years now, and they've been rebuffed all this time, but does that mean they should stop doing it? No. They have, a, they have a special emissary still trying to bring peace to Syria. Uh, in other words, I don't think people will fault the UN for trying to bring about peace because they realize what is the point of the UN other, if not to end wars. And they will forgive a UN Secretary General if he's defeated in his attempts to stop an uh, outbreak of violence. In fact, they will applaud the e effort they will applaud the intervention. One, th one thing you mentioned back in June that I really agreed with was by him not doing anything before the war broke out especially, it, it just gave the general impression to the rest of the world that it wasn't such a big deal, that people didn't have to be on guard quite as much and could have potentially slowed down the response quite a bit. And, and in those, those uh, several months before war broke out when you know, tens of thousands of, of tanks were amassing that that uh, certain actions he could have done could have just affected the pacing and the damage that, that had happened. Does that sound reasonable? No, I, I think that's absolutely true. Of course, uh, any invasion by one country to another country is against international law, and I hope that uh, this, uh, of course, will not happen in the present circumstances. I am convinced it will not happen, and I strongly hope to be right. Again, he, he, as a prime minister, he, from a political point of view, doesn't want to get involved in anything that he doesn't know the outcome of it. But a secretary general shouldn't think that way because he's not going to get hurt by, politically or otherwise, by trying to intervene in a crisis to stop it from splitting up and exploding into a war. So I think he misunderstood the role at that particular point, but he relearned it once the war began. What I was ranting about before the war was, was you know, people underestimating the bully pulpit, underestimating the moral authority. Those things, again, they're not just optics. And I just don't underestimate those as kind of just ornamental. I think they're, they're critical. They're critical. I mean, because one of the problems with the UN is that it depends on worldwide support. I mean, every country voluntarily pays dues to keep the UN in operation. And if they don't if their countries are not supporting the UN and what it's trying to do under the UN Charter, then those, that money's not going to come in. So it, just from a very practical point of view, you would want to get the support of, the, of world opinion. But also from the point of view, the whole setup of the UN Charter, it was designed as a security body. 
if you look back on what people were talking about in 1945, it was security, security, security. They did not want a Third World War. And anything that this organization could do to prevent conflict from breaking out and spreading, they would support what that organization was trying to do. The results of this conference as the beginnings of a permanent structure of peace upon which we can begin to build under God that better world in which our children and grandchildren, yours and mine, the children and grandchildren of the whole world must live and can live. Roosevelt was so determined to get the UN operating, to, to get a draft charter that the countries of the world would approve, that he, you know, he spent millions of dollars of American taxpayer monies to literally fly delegations in on U.S. Air Force planes because a lot of the countries were war-torn. They didn't have the facilities to even travel to the United States, to San Francisco, to participate in the, in the meeting. And so the U.S. supplied the planes to bring them there. They supplied the transportation to take them across our country in trains. They supplied the uh, hotels, the eating facilities for their delegations, entertainment while they were in the city. All these things which would engender a good sense of community. We cooked the food in the basement of the Veterans Building and then transferred it through a tunnel to the restaurant set up in the basement of the Opera House. We had to set up an entirely new kitchen in order to feed 2,000 people at each meal. It was the biggest restaurant in San Francisco. By the time Roosevelt was in power, public affairs had become a professional way of communicating ideas to the, to the American public. Beginning with the Dunbar and Oaks uh, meeting, which I mentioned where four countries, China, the United States, Russia, Soviet Union, that is, and Great Britain came together to uh, finalized the details of the UN Charter in 1944. The State Department printed thousands of copies of the Dunbar and Oaks proposal and through January of 1945 began distributing over 200,000 of them to interested parties. I mean, 200,000, imagine, and that was in a population much smaller than our population today, which is over 350 million people. So you can see the reach and breadth of the uh, efforts by the Roosevelt administration to influence public opinion. Uh, a 32-page pamphlet was written for the League of Women Voters. It went on and on. I mean, NBC Radio launched lectures on the UN and persuaded Hollywood to underrate a documentary on the salient importance of the Global Assembly. It was for this they had gathered at the invitation of the governments of China, Great Britain, the USSR, and the United States. This was the step made possible by Dunkirk and Stalingrad, and Normandy and the Burma Road, and Midway, planned for at Casablanca, Cairo, Moscow, Tehran, Dumbarton Oaks, and Yalta. Delegates from 46 and later 50 nations were there. The first reading on what the American public's views were of the upcoming 
meeting in San Francisco in April of 1945 came in a poll taken right after Franklin Roosevelt's January 1945 State of the Union message. At that time, 60% supported the idea of this meeting. After the Yalta meeting, which happened in February of 1945, 80% of the American public uh, were backing the idea of San Francisco and, and the UN. And finally, as the meeting began, 94% of the American people backed the idea of the United Nations. So you could understand how the crusade of public relations put on by the State Department and by Roosevelt's uh, officials had a tremendous impact on public opinion. Yes, this, this is one of the things that really amazes me is, is it shows the power of public education and public opinion. And I'm noticing a, a lot of the promotion of the United Nations stays insular to sort of what I call UN world. And the idea of trying to address, to court the uh, general public, um, I don't see happening. And, and I come from a profession, the arts, where there are hundreds of people I know that care about the world, care about these issues, but they're not being approached by anybody. They don't know that this ambassador from Afghanistan is speaking down the road from them. Um, and so uh, it's not a, just a matter of, I said before, of, of optics and stagecraft. These are really important things at a really critical time. So one of the things we can really learn from uh, Roosevelt's success is, is how important this is. I mean, it doesn't have to be the, the Hollywood MGM extravaganza that was needed in the 40s, but it can certainly be a lot more than's happening now. And it, it, it could just make, I think, a very big, big difference. I, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I'm, frankly, I fault in some ways, presidential leadership, because Roosevelt was involved. He knew he cared about this issue. He wanted to influence public opinion. Most of the presidents ever since the creation of the United Nations have simply accepted the UN as, well, that's part of our foreign policy, but I don't really, we don't really have to talk about it. Um, they, that was a misunderstanding, because if you don't have public opinion behind it about the United Nations, then there's going to be a lack of support among the congressional people who are elected by the public for the organization. A president can make a difference. It's very interesting that of all the inaugural addresses of all the presidents in Franklin Roosevelt, there's only been one president who actually mentioned the United Nations in his inaugural address, and that was John F. Kennedy in 1961. To that world assembly of sovereign states, the United Nations, our last best hope in an age where the instruments of war have far outpaced the instruments of peace, we renew our pledge of support to prevent it from becoming merely a forum for invective, to strengthen its shield of the new and the weak, and to enlarge the area in which its writ may run. I think it's very important to note that Franklin Roosevelt and the United States did not have to create the United Nations in 1945. The United States was the most powerful country on, on the planet in that year. They simply could have, you know, used their incredible power to intervene around the world as they wished or reshape countries as they desired. But Roosevelt had learned from the Second World War that you need allies to block the outbreak of conflict. He can't, can't do it alone, but he was absolutely determined that a UN body would serve to prevent the outbreak of a f 
first uh, third world war and the reason why it was so important to bring in all the countries of the planet behind that organization was they could only do it together it was only through an alliance of like-minded nations that they could block out the outbreak of war and strife and violence and so remember he didn't have to do it he could have simply gone on off on his own on his own and the US would have simply uh, acted unilaterally around the globe as it wished it didn't go that route it went the route that i think most people and most countries now acclaim which was to support this grand organization called the United Nations keep your ears and eyes out for episode 2 where Stephen and i will talk about the conference itself and dive in and look at the almost impossible job of hammering out the charter. Act of Creation was produced by yours truly under the co-sponsorship of Past Blue and the San Francisco chapter of the United Nations Association. Thanks for listening. Music